Welcome to the Center in the City podcast. I'm your host, Wade Brill, and during this series, I'll be interviewing various thought leaders, wellness experts, and humans on how they practice sustainable self-care and mindfulness. We'll get real and raw, talk about the light and the shadow side of self-care and mindfulness, and how we can actually stay centered amid the chaos and the hustle and bustle of our modern day world. So settle in and get centered. This podcast episode is brought to you by Centered in the City, a virtual on-demand self-care and mindfulness platform with over 200 different meditations, journaling prompts, nourishing recipes, and Pilates flows, all designed to support you feeling calm, focused, and energized as you live your life in this modern day world. For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven-day free trial. Welcome back to the Centered in the City podcast. I am so glad you are here. Today on the podcast, I have with me Dr. Menige Montagni, who talks to us about the neuroscience of what's happening inside of our brain and our neural pathways. We get cerebral in this episode but in a most beautiful heart-based way where we get to understand how conditioning, how we were raised, how we started to create mental maps and formations in our minds and our neural pathways really shape the way that we see and experience the world. However, lucky for us humans, because of neuroplasticity, science has also demonstrated ways that we get to tune and prune our neural pathways so that we can develop new skills, new ways of seeing and experiencing the world that might offer us more happiness and enjoyment in life. So Dr. Menige Montagi talks to us about all of these systems. She shares with us some frameworks that she's writing about and working on. And we also get a chance to talk about neurodivergent brains, people who have ADHD and how they too can still cultivate mindfulness by working with their attention in specific ways. I know this will be super helpful to anybody who has ADHD because it will offer a sense of empowerment when we start to understand our brains and how they work and how they function. So let's settle in and let's get centered. Welcome to the Centered in the City podcast, Manny Jay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wade, for in- inviting me and uh, yeah, having this conversation with together. Well, I'm really honored because I've heard so many beautiful pieces of feedback from my mentees or just community at UCLA from from your teachings there within the Mindful Awareness Research Center. So I'm so excited and honored to have you. And I wanted to begin with my question that I ask all my guests to share with us a practice that you're engaged with right now that supports you coming back to your center, whatever that means to you. Simple things like just being aware of discomfort, like I'm off off of being neutral or being a little peaceful, just taking a breath, going for a walk, you know, picking, changing scenery, changing my environment. If I'm in the office, I just get up and move to another room, just 
simply changing environment and being aware of it uh, disrupts the if, if it's thoughts that are uh, going on and they're unpleasant, it could disrupt it. If it's, you know, feelings that are in the body could be released. If it's uh, mood that is not, uh, you know, if you feel foggy or, uh, you know, maybe even too much energy, it, either way, just being aware and noticing what's happening and changing something, shifting. It's not always, take a breath, but often, yeah, shifting, changing, moving, and, uh, but noticing what's happening. Uh, and if I should continue with this line of thinking or not, you know, and, and just taking a kind of sort of a um, opportunity to have a different response or different outlook for that moment. You mentioned noticing sensations in the body of, of discomfort. And so I'm curious for you, what does it feel like when you're in a neutral space or when you're centered in the body to then know maybe when you're not feeling those ways? Well, you know, my teacher always emphasizes the cessation of suffering, he says. Pay attention to the cessation of suffering. <laughs> like pay attention to the lack of unhappiness, unpleasantness, you know. And so that lack is doesn't have to be a highly joyful or you know euphoric or highly pleasant, but just lack of uh, discomfort is a place is a very good place to be. You know, you don't have a toothache, but you don't think of your teeth. You don't feel them. You have no business thinking about them. There's no reason, you know. You don't have a backache, you don't think of your backache. There is, you don't think of your back, you don't experience it. But when you are actually noticing that there is, oh, this moment my body is stable, my mind is stable, there's a stability, there is a source of uh, calmness, lack of you know so too much maybe movement in it or too much of any kind of uh, um, in any direction there's there's really you know the word stillness can be a little too much for for people to experience or think of it because nothing is nothing is still we know that energy is moving all the time even with within solid things so the quietness, maybe stillness, groundedness, these are just kind of words and concepts that you have to experience something close to it, you know, something close to it. And I think that's uh, just, to me, lack of discomfort, lack of uh, unpleasant is neutral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because before we hit record, we were kind of talking about the humanity and why we're all still suffering. Thinking about even just our human experience, how our brains and the negativity bias, how we're trained to just kind of focus on what's wrong and what's not working. And so for me, I feel like for people to 
practice finding neutral or noticing when there's not suffering is such a big leap and a, and a, and a step for people. And so I'm curious to explore with you, why do we as humans hold and notice so much suffering and stay in that cyclical cycle? Uh, there is not so much suffering, actually, you know, there's, there are millions and millions of things that are going well, going right in our lives and around us, but we only see the four, the three things, the one thing that, and we want that to be gone, we want that to be done, we want that, and then yet with all this, you know, intention and wanting and desire to be done with unhappiness and discomfort <laughs> and humanity has done so much progress has had progress advancement in developing you know you name it from medicine to science to to any kind of you know technology to human knowledge to education to you know health and wellness and you name it right we, we try to solve those three problems, you know, or one problem, and we still haven't. So, so th this is really yeah, interesting to see. But, you know, it, it is complex. Our, our brain and our mind and our bodies and our mood and just being a human. It's not easy to be a human, you know, because from all of my own personal exploration, growth, development, you know, transformations, optimizations, all of, you know, working with hundreds of now, year after year after year, time passes, right? And we, we have more and more experience. We gain more and more knowledge. We gain, so working with so many people uh, in different arenas uh, to help them change and develop their perspective and be, you know, happier. I realized, of course, with knowledge and reading and discovering and all that, I realized that, you know, it's not really up to us. A lot of the things that we do in life or happens in our human life is not up to us. First of all, we have a brain that's managing our life. We have this you know, center this thing that is in our body and is managing our behavior, you know? And so uh, as a human being, we were born, uh, neuroscience tells us we were born partially wired, meaning, you know, the body, the, the, the baby, the infant comes with, the brain is small, the brain is partially wired to take care of physiological needs, biological needs, you know, neurological needs, all kinds of physical needs. But the brain does not come with a template of how to live a human life. Not only that, you can't even move your fingers. I mean, you, like, you know, in, it's all involuntary. You can't even stand up. You have to learn everything, even learn how to pay attention to something, right? A mother or a caregiver has to move something in front of a baby and say, look, this is, you know, that doggy or a doggy and the baby pays attention. So it's extremely complex. And so going through life, we have to learn how to be a human. While we're learning how to live like a human, there are neural pathways that develop, which is related to that wiring. The brain is developing. The brain is developing and creating neural pathways that will do these things we learn 
for us automatically. So we don't have to keep learning. We don't have to make a mistake. The brain wants to keep us alive, wants to protect us. So it puts us on autopilot, right? And so when uh, whatever we learn, the neural pathway is there, whether it's the right way of doing things or wrong way of doing things, whether we understand properly or not, whether we are told a lie or not, the brain produces the neural pathways and that's how we're gonna live, you know? And so it's very difficult. It's really not up to us to do a lot of things. The way we live our lives is the way we have been developing the brain, the environment, other people and ourselves. Our interpretation, our assumptions, our, the way we look at things, we've developed it so far. I think that's just really helpful context to create, to realize the way we've been constructed as an adult is just very layered. And so if you're somebody like most of my listeners who are interested in self-development and interested in understanding themselves, how much layering we have to discover and untangle from based on the neural pathways from all of the different ways we've been raised. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of discovered this, uh, this model of a human development that I called it I made and then life stuck. So I made is the acronym, which means it's really, I did it. Not so much like a, looking, as a, looking at it from a judgmental point of view, but that I had some with this. It wasn't just all happening to me. The way I interpret it, again, not judgmentally, but so I, I would stand for information. Information comes through our senses, from our five, six, seven, eight senses, from the environment, from, you know, and then from also internally comes about some something about love, about, you know, being hungry. How do I get fed? How do I take a shower? How do I brush my teeth or not? You know, some people don't ever brush their teeth. I've come across students who said, oh, you know, sporadically they do. Okay. <laughs> so that's just, that's something you learn. No judgment there. Judgment. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is their own, you know, life, their own the dental life. hygiene. Yeah. Yeah. The, the life we live. And so, so that information now turns into a meaning or perception. So now we have labels and we have, you know, we say, oh, this is a book, that's a pen, this is a bottle, that's a water, this, you know, this is an emotion, this is anger, this is sadness, this is, okay, so meaning and perception. Now this meaning and perception is all made up by us human beings. These are not facts. They're just for the sense of, for the purpose of communication, for the purpose of living a life. So meaning now, when you have that perception that could be faulty, could be based on a unreal, you know, unrealistic truth, now that perception becomes A, an approach or your habitual way. It's your approach or habitual way. So somebody may be, you know, become drastically overly emotional, right? They learned through going through life with family members or, you know, that, oh, if I be emotional, if I be dramatic, I get more attention, right? So now that that becomes their approach to life, their habitual way. And then after that becomes D, default. It's now D for kind of like a personality. 
people say, oh, this is how I am. This is how, you know, this is how they are. They will never change personality or default. And then E is being engulfed or stuck, being innervated, being, you're stuck in this. Now you're just, this is all you're gonna do. A lot of the information we get is missing also. Like the, the way we connect with the world, the way we connect with other people, the way we connect with other diverse people, it's missing. A lot of times it's missing. We don't know the better, you know, we don't have the full picture or full understanding. So this model becomes a individual model, family model, societal model. So just to ask a question here, the stories that we tell ourselves based off of our experiences, would we put that in the meaning? Yes. Okay. So yes. like <clears throat> when this person makes a face at me means they're angry, even though we yes. don't really know that's the truth. That's just a story our minds are telling yes. ourselves. Yes. Okay. So, so the brain also comes with, let's say just three biases that neural neuro dr amish is a neuroscientist she's you know telling us found out three biases the first one is truth bias because the brain is has to be efficient it's not going to be running around constantly fact checking for us whatever you think if you're not an expert in something that you've already developed the, the proper way whatever you think or whatever you're told you will believe it. The brain will opt to believing it. It's more, it's less, you know, it's more efficient to do that. The brain is not wise. It wasn't built to be wise. It was built to do a function, you know, run the functioning of our body. And so you believe it. And then the second bias is confirmation bias. Whatever you think you already believed in, anything else that's gonna come to you that will confirm that first truth, you're gonna take that. So somebody, somebody's face is in some way, the muscles of their face is, you know, because even emotional intelligence has been debunked about, you cannot really tell what a person is thinking or feeling from their face or from their posture. You can, that's, that's totally been debunked. So, because different cultures around the world have different expressions or different, of feeling about things. So, so your, your example of somebody looks at somebody and they think, oh, that person is looking at me because they're thinking this way. Now, this first thing that occurs to that person, it, the brain is gonna opt to take it as the truth unless you are trained not to. So then that person that you already thought this is what they're thinking, comes over and maybe they're busy and they're not looking at you. They pass by you. Confirmation bias. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what they're thinking about me. You know, not so well or not so kindly or something. Right? And then the third one is novelty bias, which is we pay attention to anything that's new. <clears throat> anything that's novel, it's like, oh, really? Is that right? You know, you... You pay attention and then they be it becomes the truth and then the confirmation. So this is a great difficulty for humanity. The entire society of humanity is built on these 
biases that builds our brain and we're constantly confirming each other's you know each other's stories and and uh, unhappiness just doesn't let up yeah but when you break it down from this neurobiological perspective it makes me feel like humanity myself included like how rigid we are how our brains have kept us in these structures and pathways of functioning even no matter even how aware we might be we still have that sense of kind of software always working yes yes exactly so this is why this is one of the things that i try to teach people about not judging oneself or another human being because we are all subject to this to these things to this brain the way our brain functions i mean i don't know what it what it was i mean the nature left the human software as you say i mean i have this five stages now the i made stuck is five stages i have a five stage of optimization which i do actually call it human software optimization so it's interesting you said that so the software is already there you know and so we we cannot blame the worst of the person we cannot judge them because the, a lot of their behavior is being run by their brain that's been mis you know faulty wrongly programmed by themselves by their interpretations by the people who raised them by the culture by the society by it doesn't matter by by what but the, they're running through their programming and so it is not easy and so the brain is not easily you know inclined to change you can't just change with your whim of what you don't want to think this way okay so i won't think this way for you what about all these neural pathways i designed i developed i have to cut them so there is a thing called in brain science tuning and pruning where it means that neural pathways that you keep using the ways that you keep thinking and the ways that you keep acting those neural pathways become tuned or strengthened and the ones that you don't use anymore the brain sees there is no need it prunes them out weakens them or prunes them out that's why practice and with practice and development of anything we can actually change the brain in the in the direction of the skill we want to build and that's the beauty of it that you know while ago many 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 years ago they found that the brain has a elasticity power which means it can change it can grow it can but the change comes with every neural pathway is a representation of a thought or a feeling or a, a behavior or a judgment or a perspective that one by one by one we could go look at them decode them and and just recode them change them and that's so empowering for us humans to not feel like we have to be stuck in our ways just because we were born this way doesn't mean we always have to think or do or be on autopilot that we can take that time i love what you said to tune and prune what's helpful in our neural pathways and what's not where would you even just recommend one person beginning if they recognize huh I want to explore like this avoidant behavior I have in my life. 
um, you know, where would I begin to even tune and prune that neural pathway? Well, that's great. So, so the, uh, you know, if we can use the model that I have and I'm writing about it, writing the book about it, the five stages. Um, so if you look at the I made this five stages starts with the information, that information could be faulty. It could be, you know, subject to conditions, subject to, you know, somebody else's dramatic, you know, experience of life or however it comes to us. Parallel to that in the optimization or change that you're talking about, number one, stage number one would be knowledge. I'm just thinking of it as knowledge because this is worthy, not that we're adults or we're grown up or we're, we're at the stage where we want to look at. Somebody says, you know, oh, if you do this thing, it would be good for you. Any, any, anything for your wellness, for your education, for your growth, for your stress reduction. So you look at it and you think, yeah, this is actually worthy of my time to take, take this up on. Then you bring it to stage two is you bring it into your own awareness and authenticate it. You know, somebody says, okay, if you stop and take a breath, observe what you're doing and then proceed like with the STOP acronym, just a small little thing. It will be good for you. You can reset, you can re, you know, begin fresh maybe. So stage two is to bring it into your own experience and actually put it to experience and see like, oh yeah, let me just do it and see what happens. People, you know, in classes or in, people start taking notes, 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 okay. After the node, you have to now put it into test. You have to verify for yourself, investigate. Is this true or not? Because while you're investigating, the brain is kind of becoming alert about, okay, now there is something is pausing us to not use that neuropathway. I'm being forced to look into this, right? So you look into, you bring it into your experience, you, you verify it, is it really true or is it not? And then you realize, oh yes, it is true. Then you go to the next step, which is development. Now you have to develop the skill to do this, which means now you have to work, the brain is going to start, you know, being sort of your ally, becoming your partner. Say, okay, if this is going to be helpful to us, let's let's develop the neural pathways. I'm just using that language, but the simpler language would be, yeah. So you have to develop the skills. And then the fourth stage is when you have developed that kind of whatever skill that's alignment with this knowledge, it comes transformation, which means you have done it so much that now neural pathways have been built. Now you feel kind of, it's kind of effortless to you. It's not so much, it doesn't take too much time to do it. Like meditation is difficult for some people, but as you keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, it becomes more natural to you, right? And then if you go back to the old habit, you already also know how to get back to this better place. You have a map, you have a way to go there. That muscle memory. This was a little more general, but does it make sense um, to apply it to any kind of example? 
Yeah. So it's, it's this idea of how we can essentially build and tune and prune our new neural pathways. It sounds like of having the awareness of what, or the knowledge that we want to be changing something, having the awareness to like bring it into our own, you said awareness and authenticity, like into our own being and kind of recognize it sounds like that patterning. Experience it for yourself. So for example, you asked me about neutral. How do you know it's neutral? I said, my ex- for, let's say this was a knowledge I gave. Oh, you could check it out by when there is no discomfort. Tune in as, so, so the awareness part of that would be, let me see, there is no discomfort. What is she talking about? Okay, I just a little bit feel a little pain behind my neck. So that's not it. I let me see, I feel kind of nothing in my fingers or kind of, you know, there is no discomfort there. Is that neutral? You know, authenticate it. Right. You know, verify it. And by your own, because we have senses, we have eight senses. Dr. I mean, that's a model of thinking. You know, Dr. Daniel Siegel would say, we have eight senses, right? The five that we know, the taste and touch and uh, smell and sight and sound. And then we have the inner experience of knowing that there is an emotion. You know that there's an itch somewhere. You know that there is a feeling or pain or something somewhere. And then you have the mental activity, all of your images in your head, all the, you know, the, the thoughts and planning and future and past and all that in your mental activity. Then you have number uh, eight, I believe, is the relationship like with your external world, your sense of, uh, so right now I am the speaker, you're the interviewee, this is a podcast, you know, there is a relationship that we are aware of. So we can bring Anything that we want to understand, if you want to understand, someone says, look, if you get upset, you're going to feel worse. Just calm down, be peaceful. You know, you say, what are you talking about? What do you mean don't be upset? Can't you see such and such is happening? Okay, in that moment, maybe you could, people who can learn this process, this methodology, which is a methodology, you bring it and you, you pause and you look, okay, if I if I just stop and not be upset, how does it feel like? Verify it for yourself. And when you have verified it, then you are um, more inclined to developing the skills in line with that. And then after you start to do that enough, kind of like you're strengthening this new muscle, this new pathway, you start to then feel and see some transformation. Yes, yes. And so transformation, so so I have like a three dimensions of uh, optimization, which I call life intelligence, because again, based on that original um, sort of um, theory or philosophy or fact that neuroscientists they tell us that our brain does, we do not come with a template for living an effective, happy, fulfilled, successful life. We don't. Brain evolution left it for humans to take care of it themselves because all around the planet, people do it differently, right? So because we don't come with that, then 
there are I I kind of became aware and guesstimated or studied and put this together that there are three dimensions of life that we need to become intelligent about. So each dimension has its own categories and subcategories and skills that need to be developed. When the person goes through uh, stages one to four, from knowledge to awareness to uh, development and transformation, under all these three dimensions, then they are optimized. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a really incredibly uh, fulfilling and effective and alert and and successful life as a human being where we don't harm others we do not get harmed ourselves we are we have really just just proper boundaries you know mm. relationship thoughtful life yeah it's, it's interesting you're sharing how as humans you know we're not born with these roadmaps which you know as a life coach a lot of people when they come to me to want to work on their vision or their career growth or their life transition moment. They're like, give me the math. Just tell me the answer. And and so coming into this framework, I can see would be really helpful in helping people learn to listen to themselves and trust themselves and integrate and develop those new skills to then be living a more aligned, authentic life that I hear this formula creates. I want to talk about you know, a group of people who are a little bit more neurodivergent. So people who have ADHD, how does their mind work with mindfulness, knowing that typically has a harder time concentrating or fulfilling tasks or sitting still, right? Are are things that their ADHD is associated with? Yeah. But there is a lot um, to know about that brain type because it's not, uh, first of all, this brain type was um, identified by a doctor named Dr. William Dodson, psychiatrist, that it is not a attention deficit and disorder, uh, mainly because it's not consistently impaired the impairments of it, supposedly the impairments are not consistently present. They change. There are times that the person is highly effective, highly organized, highly efficient, highly present and on time. And, you know, uh, so uh, so there is, there is a different kind of a functionality with this brain type that one needs to understand different aspects of it. And then align oneself with those aspects because, um, you know, as it's been sort of determined so far, maybe 20, 10 to 20%, I think it's more than that, but let's say 20% of the population has this brain type and uh, the rest are neurotypical, according to Dr. Dotson, which means um, they go about life in similar ways similar ways. So all the systems, all the ways of doing life is designed for that, that uh, you know, population, the, the greater population. And so when this person from this uh, ADHD group wants to live and function in that, in that, you know, in that system, it's very difficult. It doesn't match. That just doesn't match. And because it's not natural to this brain, it, it feels 
like failure. It feels like it's constantly coming up short, constantly not finishing tasks, constantly, you know. And so compared to that system, it's a failure. But uh, so again, there's a lot to talk about. But let's say one of the things that um, that the, this brain type um, has that Dr. William Dotson says that if this person does not have this quality, it is so integral that they don't have ADHD. He is just like, and that's sensitivity. Rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, he calls it, which means severe amount of painful experience when one is feeling they are rejected or shamed or or objected to or, and so it is so fast. It is so uh, in, incredibly un, uh, unvisible, invisible to the person who has it, that they react. They react very quickly, either by rage or by, you know, shutting down or running out or, you know, or minimizing the, the person who's important in their life. Oh, they don't understand. They don't know anything, you know, or become a people pleaser because it is so painful that they, they're walking on eggshells constantly, not to be... And, and the, the problem is, you know, the forgetfulness and tardiness and the disorganization and the procrastination, all of this that have reasons which I, you know, take time and explore and explain within courses, all of these confirm to the person that yes, you are defective. And so they're, they're very ready to judge themselves, right? Very ready. So this mindful awareness is, uh, first of all, attention is not constant. Attention is based on uh, four or five things that become available to the person. Uh, and so because attention is not constant and it becomes available based on interest, based on urgency, based on novelty and challenge or competition. When a person wants to focus, if none of this is available, there's no way they could do it. So mindfulness for this brain cannot go the main mainstream route of just pay attention to your breath, just, you know, keep coming back to your breath, keep coming back to your breath. It, it may not be the perfect, the best route, uh, you know, for this brain type. So, uh, so there are other ways that, you know, we explore in, in our courses about this. And for myself too, I've had to, you know, I've had great amount of struggle with meditation. And there was a time that I would have a fight with my mind. It's like, didn't you say, let's go sit and meditate? <laughs> didn't we come and sit down <laughs> together? I drove here, I came here. Why don't you shut up, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And then I realized um, it's, well, when I was learning, when I was thinking about this interest-based nervous system, it's like, like, what is the interest, you know? You have to infuse something within this activity for the mind and the brain to become available, become engaged, become motivated. So, for example, one of the retreats I had gone, a uh, 10-day silent retreat, and it was just 
killing me like two days into it I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't all day long you know you're sitting walking sitting walking nine hours a day you're meditating so I remember I said to myself okay okay I'm gonna send this you know do this meditation and come to my breath to send it to my son you know uh, for his mind or for his brain because that was that was the mother's you know uh, wish and desire that kept kept me really focused it was not no longer for uh, me it was it was for him so so in that moment what happened to the deficit what happened to the you know what I mean disorder disorder mm -hmm. and deficit went away Right. Now I am in it. Now I am motivated. Now I'm engaged. Now I am full of, because of the love, because of the desire that I wanted for him. And I believe that this is going to happen for him, you know? So, so you asked is, yourself, like, what can I be interested in in this moment yes, yes. to find so some inner motivation yeah, and some settling? Something. So if people, like, for example, with ADHD, often couples... The spouses maybe you know uh, or parents or so they they complain about oh my god he never pays attention he doesn't listen he doesn't he doesn't or she doesn't or she doesn't and so then i re i remind them that it is not for lack of uh care it really is not it is that attention is not consistent it's the dopamine and whatever that is necessary for the brain to release is not because there are drops in the in the flow of these chem chemicals that are necessary. Within the drop, the person gets detached. And it's not because they're not paying attention because they don't want to. It, all of a sudden, it's the brain function, right? So, but then if you infuse the person with ADHD, if they infuse, if they are in listening to a topic, let's say, that is of their interest. And it's not like preferential, but more of your brain is in, you know, is interested to know. Then that that gap and drop never doesn't happen for some reason. The brain continues to produce the, the chemicals that are necessary for your attention because your mind is also is involved very much. Your interest is involved. So that's just, you know, one of the ways. And so if pe a person is, um, you know, like uh, said, oh, my husband, whenever he makes coffee, he always drops the coffee grains on the table and he never wipes it. And I don't know why he does that. Why can't he just do it? Why can't, you know? And so he says, I, I don't know. What's the big deal? Why are you making a big deal out of this? You know, every day you give me a hard time. And then yet every day he still does it, right? Even though she, he, he keeps hearing it, he keeps he keep doing it. So I said, okay, so let's, let's, let's talk about this. So your wife is agitated. She gets frustrated. Yeah. Do you know, I asked the husband, do you know what it feels like to be frustrated? Do you, from your perspective, from your experience, have you ever been? Oh yeah, all the time. I get frustrated when I'm driving. I get frustrated. Oh good, okay. So one of those examples. Do you know what it feels like? Do you, can you remember or can you imagine what it feels like? 
yeah, he says, I, I become, you know, upset. I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And my mood changes. And so he began to explain. What, so I said, okay, so all of these qualities you are just talking about right now, that's what she experiences. Is that what you want for her? Is it okay for you that she would experience that? Oh, my God. It just, all of a sudden, it hit him that, really? <laughs> It's no longer about the coffee grains or about him doing acting properly or being clean, clean, clean or nothing like It's not about, oh, no, oh my God, are you kidding me? I would never want my wife to start her day like that. That's awful. And that gave him extra meaning, extra interest, extra, you know what I mean? That you be infused into this. Now she... He was very careful and attention came all of a sudden, out of mm. nowhere. And now he, there's no disorder about that activity. Right. So it's kind of helping connect the wires to more meaning. And, it's, and it sounds like to a, more of a felt sense because we yeah. can't really assume when we're hearing the words people are, are telling us we're doing or the action we're not doing or our attention is... X, X, Y, and Z, but when we connect to more of a, it sounds like a felt sense that feels personal, it can help people with ADHD connect a dot to then recognize, okay, where's the, where's their attention actually going right now? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Making it personal, making it personal. So because a person with ADHD is actually very empathetic too. Because they they get it, they feel it. They could they could sense other people, but when it's in relation to their own action and the impact of their action, there's another quality called lacking self appraisal that the person is not able to kind of know the impact of their action or inaction. And so with this mindfulness, it would be very very helpful to put the effort and to put the the sort of the subject of noticing action and the result of my action. The result of my action is what? Maybe it's a physical result, you know, okay, I put away things and it looks peaceful. I left things on the table and it looks really, you know, cluttered. You see actually tuning into the result of one's actions on somebody else's mood and heart and mind and life or on the environment, or on their, or their own life and environment, you know, connecting. There's a disconnection between action and result. When mm. you connect the dots between action and result, then the person becomes much more, you know, um, properly functioning. Well, it's interesting because this circles back to what you shared at the beginning of how we all can practice not creating harm for ourselves and each other when we bring more awareness and when we can tap into more of this happiness that is always available when we find this inner sense of, oh, we're all here working yeah. to live yeah. and survive with each other. Pay attention to lack of, to lack of difficulty, lack of, you know, unhappiness, 
lack of pain, lack of, you know, sadness, like to the lack of unpleasantness. If you pay attention, you'll see that, wow, this is actually pretty nice. Beautiful. Well, I could keep talking to you about the brain and our awareness practice for ever. So we'll just have to have you back on the podcast, especially when your book comes out. So exciting. Thank you for being here. Where can people learn more about you and stay connected to your work? Yeah, that would be great. So uh, I have a website myself, drmanagermotagi.com or motagi.com or manager.com. Anywhere you put it, it come up. And also my nonprofit that offers these courses is perfectlyhere.org. Perfectly here, H-E-R-E. Uh, .org where we, you know, offer courses in mindfulness, courses in life optimization. And also I do one-on-one coaching for adults with ADHD and other adults, uh, you know, any anybody about life, learning skills of life and how to manage our life, our human life, human experience, how to make it better, how to improve it. Like I'm sure you do the same with your clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Centered in the City podcast. If you found this episode helpful or insightful, please share this episode with somebody in your community. As we know, sharing is caring. Thanks for being here. And until next time, stay centered.